0: Lord willing, next Lord's Day, a week from today, we're going to start a long series on, and I mean long series, on discipleship. We are studying uh, the book, What is the Mission of the Church? And the conclusion, if you haven't gotten to the end yet, is that the mission of the Church is to make disciples of all nations. And uh, the book that does a great job of telling us why that is the mission of the church. But it, it, the purpose of it is not to tell us how we accomplish that mission. That's not what the book is written. So we're going to piggyback on that and talk about discipleship. And in that series, we're going to talk about discipleship in terms of parenting, in terms of marriage, in terms of being part of a local church, being part of a neighborhood, be part of a family. And all those areas we're going to, we're going to be talking about in, as we talk about discipleship we're going to start that next week. This morning, I wanted to have a standalone lesson on worship. Uh, and especially, why is it that we do what we do? Uh, did we just get a, out of a bag with a bunch of little papers uh, and pull one out and so, say, okay, that's what we're going to do? Or there's some other basis for what we do here as a church? Uh, John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, and he starts it with a very provocative and immensely profound statement where he says, um, missions exist because worship doesn't. So the reason we are to go to all the nations to proclaim the gospel is because they are not worshiping Jesus that's really why we're going to all the nations is because they out there are not worshiping Jesus. So the missionary movement exists because worship doesn't in some places. And the scriptures show the flow of redemptive history. If you, if you can tell the, 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 the history of the scriptures, the history of humanity by the history of worship. The redemptive history moves from perfect worship before the fall to no worship for a little while, to imperfect worship, that's what we do here, to perfect worship in the eternal state. And if you think about it, worshiping is the only activity that we know for sure we're going to be doing forever. Uh, there is no other activity that we can clearly say from the scriptures that's something that we're going to be doing for our eternity. Worship is that one activity that we can say, Thus says the Lord, we're going to be worshiping Him forever. So because of that, that is a supremely important subject. Today, we're going to consider how we decide what we should do when we gather to worship. And we're going to start by just looking at two definitions that are going to be helpful as we progress through this lesson. And the definition, uh, the definitions I wanted to talk about is the definition of these two terms. The regulative principle and the normative principle. The serious, thoughtful, Bible-believing Christians usually fall into one of these two ways of thinking, Uh, thinking about worship in terms of the regulative principle or the normative principle. Sometimes people don't have titles for their categories, but these are the two broad categories that faithful, serious, Bible-believing people will fall under. The regulative principle says that everything we do in corporate worship must be clearly warranted by the Scriptures. clear warrant can either take the form of an explicit biblical command or a good and necessary implication of a biblical text. So explicit or implicit requirements of the Bible. So what the Bible commands us to do in worship, that's what we do. The normative principle teaches that as long as a practice is not biblically forbidden, a church is free to use it to, in order to uh, structure its, its corporate worship life. Do, do you see the difference between the two positions? One is only what the Bible commands, either in, explicitly or implicitly. That's the regulative principle. The Bible regulates, regulative regulates worship. The, the other is... Whatever the Bible doesn't forbid, we're okay to do. That's the normative principle. Any questions on these definitions before we continue? The, uh, this, uh, the normative principle is crystallized uh, by an Anglican minister called Richard Hooker. And it was also uh, Martin Luther who uh, practice this particular uh, principle. So... Those are the two, really, when people are thinking about worship, those are the two areas where they fall under. Now, there's a lot of people that just, a lot of churches, that just don't think about worship. They just do whatever without necessarily trying to anchor what they're doing in the scriptures. Now, which one do you think um, we follow here or we try to follow here? Which one do you think I, as your pastor, believe is the proper one? Lois, be very careful. (laughs) Very careful what you're going to say. Yes, good job, Lois. As a regulative uh, principle, is what we believe, not just personally, but also constitutionally, is in our statement of faith in Westminster Standards, that, that is what the Bible teaches concerning the corporate worship of the church. So why? Why is the regulative principle, then, a better way of thinking about worship? <clears throat> do you wanna, do you wanna, can you think about what would be a first argument from that? It'd be very clear who, it's it it is. Right. It's, it's, it's very clear. It's not like you and I are trying to decide what is it, what we should do. Rick? Okay, it's to worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay, Andrew? The second commandment. The second commandment, all right. Um, but where we start? Yes, because the Bible says so. That's really, that, at the bottom line, all these things are true. And we're going to talk about every one of these things that you just said. But let's, let's just start with the very obvious, right? It, it is the best thing because the Bible teaches it. In Deuteronomy 12, which the whole chapter is about worshiping God. Okay. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, says this, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And it here refers to worship, and to what he's commanded in the context of worship. It's interesting that in that chapter of Deuteronomy 12, God says, don't worship false gods. We all get that, right? We, we understand that, that we are okay with that. But then he also, he also says, don't worship the true God falsely. No, just because we are in sincerely trying to worship the true God doesn't mean that we're doing it to right either. Sincerity and desire to please Him is not the ultimate decider whether corporate, something we do in corporate worship is right or wrong. Secondly, why is the regulative principle a better way to think about worship? Well, because when we are leading people in worship, we are binding their conscience in each part of the service. And the conscience can only be bound by the scriptures. If we as elders are going to say, you must do this in worship, we can only use the word, use the word must as something that you must do, if we can back that up from the scriptures. Do you notice that when we ask you to stand, we always say, if you're able, stand. Because we can't say from the scriptures that you must stand to read the Word of God that if you're sinning otherwise. So we say, it's a good way to show respect. But if you're not able, then you're not able. The same with singing. But we never say, if you're able, sing. Because if you don't sing in worship, you are sinning. I mean, regularly. Now, you have a really bad sore throat and you just can't, no, no, that's not it. But if you decide that, you know what, I'm just going to not sing in the worship, that's a sinful attitude in your part because the Bible commands that. Do you see how we can only, how we, we, we show to you as elders that there are things that we must do and there are things that we must and, not, and there are things that would be nice to do but we can't say if you're not doing it, you're sinning. So when we say you must do it, we have to prove from the Scriptures. If you're going to bind your conscience, you must prove that from the Scriptures. And thirdly, this is a better way to approach because the Bible is full of examples of God caring about how, the house of our corporate worship. Read through to the Bible. You're going to find time and again, not just God caring that His people are worshiping Him corporately, but also caring about how they worship Him corporately. Are, we, are you with me? Somebody says, oh, God is just a God of the big picture. He's not worried about details. And then to that person say, have you ever read the Bible? I mean, have you read the description of the ark? Which is not for us. I mean, we're not going to build it. And yet, God gave us all the details. Have you ever seen the details of the tabernacle? How it's supposed to be done? Down to the angles? So, God is a God of of details, of of precision. He's a precise God. Any thoughts or questions before we continue? Alright, worship is the purpose of redemption. God redeems us so that we can... Worship. And perhaps it should be, but instead of using the definite article, as is the purpose, it should be is a purpose, an important purpose of redemption. If you grab your Bible, open to Exodus chapter 3 ish. Well, starting chapter 3, in 3 through 10, Exodus 3 through 10, we have the narrative of the Exodus. Right, it's the it's Moses going back to Egypt and dealing with Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to let his people God's people go. One thing we miss, though, is that Moses got, and God always say, "Let my people go," so that they can do what? Go worship me. If you if you remember the first plea that Moses makes, you can read that in Exodus 3, 12, is not that just let my people go and never come back. The first plea that Moses makes with the Pharaoh is that, just let my people go a few days into the desert and worship God. And you see that in chapters 3 through 10 of, of Exodus, corporate worship is said to be the purpose of redemption, of being freed from Egypt. As an example, do look at verse 12 of chapter 3. So he, in this, here's God, so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And the word serve here is a word often used for worship God on this mountain, Mount Horeb, otherwise also known as Mount Sinai. Verse 18 of the same chapter. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, to ye, shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to, the, to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. May, let us go that we may worship God. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. What is that? It's worship. And you can f- see the pattern that the, every time that Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh was, was this message, let my people go, free us that we might worship God. And you can f- see that in um, Later on in chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, all the way through chapter 10, that is the, the, the case. So if you, if you read through Exodus and Deuteronomy, you will see that God picked the place where he was going to worship. He picked the time and how corporate worship was going to happen. He didn't say, guys, just come before me in sincerity of heart, and whatever you do is going to be great. No, he said, I want you to come in sincerity of heart, but you're going to do it in this place, at this time, and in this way. God did not leave it up to the sinful imaginations of his people to figure out how he should be worshipped. Any questions or comments before we continue? Yes, Doug. The regular principle, um, you know, I think everybody has a regular principle. Correct. Right. And in our sort of entertainment driven worship, we seem to be
1: regulated by pragmatism. You know, we think this works, brings in the law. Yeah.
0: More about what's popular, uh, and you know, we can go on. Right. Um, so if, like, the real problem is that we're regulating it by hand centered things instead of by Yes. And, the, the, and I think the root of that is that I think the Church of Jesus Christ has lost. It's understanding of what the Lord's Day is and what the Lord's Day worship is. It, it, it's become popular to say that, we, that the worship service is for unbelievers. And for, since the 1930s on in the United States, every sermon has been on John 3.16. No matter what verse, what passage began but it was supposed to be a you-need-to-get-saved sort of message, when the corporate worship on Lord's Day is not for the unbeliever. It's for the believer. It's for the believer to worship his or her God. Therefore, he gets to decide. We are, we, we want to be seeker-friendly in our worship service. But only there's only one that we that is seeking worship, and that's God Himself. This is the one that we're going to be friendly to in the way that we design worship because He is the one that gets to tell us what we're going to do. I want to show that God cares, cared for how people worshiped in the Old Testament. Second commandment makes it clear that God cares about how His people worship Him, not just that they not not just that they worship Him. How, not just that. Uh, It's in in Exodus twenty, verses four through six, it's on the screen says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath or that is, in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. Do you notice that what he doesn't say here, that we always think the second commandment says? It doesn't say, don't worship other gods through images. Does it? I don't see it there. It doesn't say, worship other gods through images. It says, just don't worship God through images. So yes, worshiping other gods is not right, because we already have the first commandment. But the second commandment is talking about not worshiping the true God through images. Through created things. One thing that we don't realize either is that in making the golden calf, remember the episode of the golden calf? Israel was attempting to set up an alternative to the system of worship that God had just revealed to Moses in Exodus. And they were not trying to worship a different God, they were trying to worship the God who redeemed them from Egypt through the golden calf. If you still have your book, a Bible open in Exodus, go to chapter 32. Exodus 32, and starting in verse 1. So in, uh, in Exodus 25-30, you have the account of God giving the law to Moses, and so on. And in 32, this is what's happening when Moses is up on the mountain. And it says, Now when the people, in verse 1, saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are the ear, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with the engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's going to say, This is a new God. This is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron is trying to present in a... Image form the God who brought them out of Egypt. And and God's jealous and violent reaction indicates how seriously he takes both himself and his worship. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt they so have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commend them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath... The wrath may burn not hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you of you a great nation, and so on. And so when they tried to worship the true God, falsely, God was ready to destroy them all. And how serious he took them, uh, he, took, uh, he took his worship. It's interesting, if you look at verse 5, uh, Aaron ends what he's saying there by saying tomorrow is a feast to whom? The Lord. Now, how is it written? All capitals. Aaron said we're going to worship Yahweh, the God who delivered us from Egypt through this calf. He wasn't calling them to worship a different God. It was a true God, falsely through an image. So we are not to worship Him in just any way that seems right to us. We are to worship Him on his terms, and in the way that he has revealed. And you might say, but that's the Old Testament, right? And I hope you don't say that, but you might still be corrupted by some false ideas that somehow the first half of the Bible is not as good as the second half of the Bible, and, or is not as authoritative and whatever. You might say, oh, that's the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is different, which, is, which means that then you now you have two gods, not just one, which kind of is confusing, because the Bible says there's only one God. Um, and But the New Testament is different. Well, let's see if the New Testament is different. God cares how people worship in the New Testament as well. Look at John chapter 4. Look at, at 4, starting at verse 19. It's a, it's a popular passage. I think we all kind of... Uh, Summarize it, a well-known passage. And in this passage, Jesus tells the woman at the well that Samaritan worship was inadequate because it was based on a view of God informed only by a modified version of the Pentateuch, not the whole Old Testament. So the Samaritans grabbed the first five laws of the law, They did not accept any other books in the Old Testament. And then everywhere where it said Mount Sinai, or no, not Mount Sinai, everywhere it said Mount Moriah or Zion or Jerusalem, they replaced that with Mount Gerizim, which was their sacred place of worship. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. Your worship, what you do not, you worship what you do not know, We know what the worship for for salvation is of the Jews. She said, you worship what you don't know. You're trying to worship based on things that you don't know. You base your worship on false documents, on false ideas, on false theology. This is not proper worship. Their sincerity was commendable. The Samaritan sincerity was commendable. And necessary, but not sufficient to be proper worship, corporate worship." their worship was inadequate because proper worship is a response to whom God has revealed himself to be. And if worship is a response to revelation, you get. are you following me on this one? Worship is a response to what God has revealed himself to be. And if worship is a response to revelation, then it must be according to that revelation that God has given us. If we are worshiping God because He has shown Himself to us, then we need to worship Him according to the things that He's shown to us. And He shows us things in the Bible. Jesus goes on to point out that God is looking specifically for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. They will worship God by the indwelling spirit according to the self revelation of God disclosed most fully in Jesus Christ. Again, we, we see that sincerity is essential, but not enough. Worship is regulated by revelation. Remember what John said later on in, verse, in chapter 17 when he's praying for his disciples Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Same gospel. So here we are to worship him in truth, and he tells us that his word is truth. And now, if you could, would you turn to First Corinthians chapter fourteen? In Paul's instructions on corporate worship, chapter 12 and 14, especially about chapter 14, is about corporate worship. And in his instructions on corporate worship, Paul encourages prophecy over speaking in tongues. Look at verses 1 through 5. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more than that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may may receive edification." So, he says, in the corporate worship of the church, prophecy is better than tongues. But if tongues are spoken, they must be regulated. even says in verse 29 that, how else could they weigh what is said in the assembly if not by what the Bible says? The main reason in verse 29 that tongues are to be interpreted is so that they can compare what's being said to the Bible. Because that's the ultimate Revelation of God. And Paul goes on to base the whole structure of the worship service on the character of God. Look at verse 33. It says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And the character of God is revealed in the Bible. That's why the Bible is authoritative over what we do in Worship And notice also that Paul is regulating what goes on in the worship service by divine revelation given to him by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the word of God? He's not speaking as Paul the brother or Paul the friend of the Corinthian. He's speaking about, as Paul the one who is speaking the very words of God to them. And those words are to regulate their worship. So corporate worship, even charismatic Apostolic, when I mean I don't mean what's passed on by charismatic worship today, but in first century, before these extraordinary gifts hadn't gone away, even that was regulated by revelation, the revelation of the scriptures. Any questions or comments before we continue? Tilly. So think about the Old Testament. Whatever God said there is for us, unless God said that's not for us anymore, right? And the read Hebrews, and it's clear that the sacrificial, priestly, ceremonial part of the worship of the public worship is not for us anymore, because all that's done in Jesus Christ, right? So um, we, by faith in Jesus, we are doing all those things. It's not that we don't do them, or we just do them in Jesus, right? So well, hold on. So that's gone. So we don't need to do that anymore. So because the Bible clearly says that, the Old Testament um, worship was clearly vicarious, it was through other people, right? The congregation of the Lord would watch the priests worship, and through them worship God. We are now a kingdom of priests. So, so worship is no longer vicarious. We do that. So those things that the priests did as far as singing, praying, interceding, now is given to all the saints of Jesus Christ. The things that have been fulfilled in Christ as revealed to us in the Bible, we don't need to do them anymore. So the the Old Testament remains regulative in what we do as we interpret it through the, the light of the new covenant. right? Because Revelation is progressive. God gives us more, and we interpret the previous revelation by the most current revelation as we go on in the Bible. Yep. And I still questions questions like about you know, the robes they wore, the decor of the temple, and all of those things mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily, I mean, some of them were figurative. Maybe all of it was figurative. Correct. So Hebrews 7 through 9 says, says clearly that everything regarding the temple and the tabernacle... Was a prefiguration, prefiguring, prefigured Christ, right? So it's not regulative for us. Now, there's just some application. Yes, the application could be that architecture matters in worship. How the aesthetic of things matters. But that's an application. It's not, doesn't mean that in order to worship God, you must have all these things on your walls and so on. So, any other? Questions? All right, so, these things being true, then how do we apply it? This way. Jesus is building his church and he's doing it by the power of his own word. That's how he's building his church, by the power of his own word. In Matthew 16, he clearly says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Romans 16. Paul says that it is the gospel, the word of God about Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. In Romans 10, he says that it is through the preaching of the word that people come to know Jesus Christ better. So he's building his church and he's doing it by the power of his own word. He's also regulating the church's worship by the same word. He builds it by the word, and he regulates what we do by that word that he's using to build it. And he's graciously informing us how we are to approach him. Now, how then can we structure our Sunday worship gatherings in a way that reflects God's commitment to shaping the church by his word? How is it that our Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon services are structured so that it reflects this Idea that Christ is building and regulating His church by His Word. Well, it's simple. We read, we preach, we pray, we sing, and we see His Word. I was trying to get all s's, but the, I couldn't find an s word for preach or for read. So, but that's what we do. Everything is around the Word of God. These basic elements of worship are essential to the corporate life, health, and holiness of any local church. So we read the Bible. We read the Word. First Timothy four thirteen, Paul giving directions to this pastor, and Paul says, Tell I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. It really irks me when a preacher says, We don't have time to read the text today, but we're going to That's the only inspired thing that's going to be said all morning. Your sermon's not inspired. The text is. So if we don't have time to do anything else, we need to have time to read publicly and corporately the Word of God. Elders are commended by God to see to it that Scripture is regularly read in the public assembly of the saints. So carving out time... In our Sunday worship services, to read the Bible aloud, without comment every week makes a statement about the value we place on God's Word. So it's not just preliminary, it's not pre-game stuff. It's serious and serious element of worship, a means of grace in and of itself. God dispenses grace to His people through the public reading of His Word. In Revelation says, in the book of Revelation says that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of God. So we read the Bible as an element of worship. It says, we, it, it says that we are eager to hear the word of God as we, as we read it aloud. It acknowledges that the life and growth of our local church depend on the power of God's word. It shows that we really believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Any questions about reading the word of God aloud, publicly incorporated as being an element that should be present in the worship of God? Doug. Um, in the ESV, uh, first, first Timothy 13, it says pay attention to the public. Reading of the word. Right, so the public uh, is, uh, ed- is an editorial edition, it's just simply the word. Reading, But because exhortation and doctrine have a public aspect of it, then they are interpreting that in the context, in the context to be public. But the word is not that; It's just a simple word for reading there. Anything else? So we read the Bible. We preach the Bible as well. Again, Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word... Be ready in season, out of season. In season, out of season means when it wants, to, when the people want to hear it, when it's convenient, and when it's not convenient. That's the idea of in season and out of season. When people want to hear it and when people don't want to hear it. So what's a constant in the worship of God? is the preaching of the word. And if you went to Europe in the 1500s, where more and more of Europe is becoming Protestant, you're going to see a change in architecture. It used to be that at the center of the church was the communion table, the the Eucharist for the Eucharist, where the main thing would happen. That's when the mass would happen. That's where the bread and the wine would become literally the blood and the body of Christ. That was the main event. In some churches, there would be a pulpit here on the side for a brief homily. But the main event was here. As you move, especially as you move into England under the Puritans, so if you want to, roughly the Puritan age is 1562, 1562 is 1662. If you think of that, that's kind of roughly the Puritan age. There's a change in which the table is no longer fixed to the floor. It's a movable table that can be moved out of the way when needed. And the thing that's fixed in the middle of the church is the holy desk, the pulpit. Because that's central to the worship of God. When the word is being preached and we're hearing the word, we actually are worshiping God. So the preaching, both the actual preaching of the minister and the hearing is an of action? That would be redundant, right? Because if it's action a bit. But it's active. It's an active activity? <laughs> an active something. <laughs> Thing That works. That's a very good. An active thing that we do. And it's a means of grace as we do it in and of itself. So elders are commanded by God to preach the Bible regularly. And the preaching of God's word is God's, God's ordained method for communicating the gospel to sinners. And pastors, pastoring is ultimately about ensuring salvation for ourselves and others. And that happens through the preaching of the Word of God. And if that strikes you weird saying that uh, that's what pastoring is, well, that's what Paul says in First Timothy 4, that, uh, the, that Timothy as a pastor is to make sure that he, is, he, he himself is saved and the people under him are saved as well. And he does that in the context of preaching the Word as well. And that's why a regular diet of gospel-centered expository preaching is crucial for the worship of the church. So we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed, I've been trying to be much more intentional about that uh, lately uh, in, it, uh, in, the, in the opening prayers, where we are talking about God's attributes, and a lot of the, the prayers I'm praying in the, in the beginning of the morning service are actually just Bible verses being prayed back uh, to God. Um, hurrying up here, we're going to sing the Bible as well. The whole Ephesian church is commanded to sing to one another as a sign of being filled with the Spirit. And we're going to sing songs that are filled with the Bible. That includes the Psalms. That includes singing other parts of the Bible. That includes singing old hymns. That includes singing new songs. That's all part of, of worshiping God. And then we are going to see the Bible. That's the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper where God in his goodness to us, knowing that we're sensible people, and I don't mean sensible, maybe a better word is sensual, and I don't mean that in a sexual way, but in the sense that we, are, we always interpret the world through senses. He gives us the baptism of the Lord's Supper, where in the Lord's Supper, for example, we can smell the bread, we can touch the bread, we can see the bread, we can taste the bread, we can hear the words of institution. All that is part of the worship of, of the Lord that he has given to us. Any questions or comments? And in the Lord's Supper, in the sacraments, really that's the drama that God has given us for worship. You know, people say, let's add some drama, let's have some um, people here acting out and choreographing songs. No. The, 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 the waters of baptism, the bread and the cup, these are the dramatic events of the Lord's. That's how we met the gospel of Jesus Christ in so we don't need some extra drama. The Bible already gives us that in the in the the table and in baptism. Any questions about worship? Regulative principle. Why we do things the way we do here? Andrew What elements come to mind right? Do any elements of those who prescribe the normative principle that the are there any that you find particularly offensive as far as breaking the regulative principle? Sorry, that came out <laughs> What is that really stinks? What, what in the, an example of someone who follows the normative principle? I mean, we oftentimes hear about like, drama in mm-hmm. like, contemporary churches. But as far as historic churches, in what way do they break the regulative principle in their liturgy? Are there any examples that Um, the The use of images. Is one of them um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, and so on? The Anglican Church will have images as helps to worship. They're not. They're not saying they worship the image, but they said the images help them in the corporate worship. That that is not you no know, in the scriptures. Um, yeah, and then anything that we don't do here. <laughs> I mean, isn't, that, isn't that the conviction? If I said otherwise, it means that I'm misleading you, right? If there's something we should be doing that we're not doing, then I'm a bad pastor uh, to you. Rick? Would the, would be considered I mean, they would- not necessarily because they believe the church has the authority to regulate worship. We believe the church has the authority to declare what the Bible says about worship, Guess need the church that actually have in and of itself authority to decide what is the worship of God. Keith. I think coming from a church which was probably normal, bit, I think it was a the emphasis of the word mm-hmm. and the singing was not hymns, you know. Yeah. Right. Now, don't hear me saying that old is good and new is bad, yeah. okay? Because there's some, a lot of old stuff that's bad and a lot of good stuff that's new. It's just that we have to let the word judge what is it that we sing, not just content. And this might sound weird, and you can talk to Nick about it. Um, anyone, questions directed to Nick. I think the scriptures also talk about the, the, not just the lyrics, but the music itself, the tunes, um, no somebody uh think was Nick so what, what would you say to someone who looks at the, um, the lord 's Supper and says, "Well, we should only use a common cup, cup and we should only have one loaf of bread because that 's what jesus did so two things one is that that 's not what Jesus did because in the Passover everyone had a cup of them of, that belonged to each one of them right that 's the one thing and uh uh, we do use a common law here. It's just that it comes cut up. So. If, that, if people are going to make, make that point, yeah. We're not going to go back to, We're gonna go back to it. <laughs> We're going to stay free from images. No, go ahead, Louis. <laughs> Images, uh, see the second amendment does not forbid the making of images, it forbids the worshiping of God through images, right? So it's not, not, not every image everywhere because it, even in where Taylor was talking about the temple and so on, they had images there, right? They had the, the cherubim, they had the, the, the bowls that were under the laver that the priests washed themselves, you had uh, different things there, but it's the worshiping of those. That are, or using them as helps to worship, that's also forbidden in the Second Commandment. Um, at our house, we never had really books. At least we didn't buy them for our kids or someone that they had images of Jesus and so on. Um, but it's not necessarily, I don't think, even though our, our Constitution says it's sinful, I, don't, I think that's an overreaching of the Second Commandment there. Okay, Dina, you have the final word. Yes. Yes. Of church, and right. So, and that's based on John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' yeah. feet. And he does that. And then he says, this is, and, and if you keep reading, so a lot, some, a lot of Eastern Protestant churches, which the Slavic church is one of them, will consider washing the feet a sacrament. So, the, the Mennonites, that believe the Bible. They believe that washing the feet is a sacrament. The problem is that uh, when Jesus did that, and he's, he, if you keep on reading John 13, says, this is what this means. You're going to serve one another. I'm not doing this so that you can go wash somebody's feet. I'm doing this to show you what it means to serve one another. It's to do the most menial thing, so sometimes that might look like you coming and washing Lori's feet because she can't reach it, she has a bad back, and the feet are dirty. But it also may look like taking somebody a meal. It may look like praying for them and so on. So it's not given as, do this in remembrance of me. It's an object lesson, object lesson. That's really what it is, not a prescription to do this in order to worship me. We could go forever, for, for a while at least on this, but we are already five minutes over. We'll pray. And then we, if you we want to talk more over lunch, we can do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity and the ability to worship you through your spirit. We pray that we will be faithful to you as we do that. We asking in Jesus' name. Amen.